0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. It's so good to see you. I'm glad you're here today. Give somebody a high five this morning. Give them a high five and then grab a seat. Not a single high five over on this side. We don't, we don't do high fives. High fives. Man, it's so good to see you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jernigan. It's my joy to be the pastor here. Uh, thanks for coming and spending some time with us at Discover Church. Let me tell you a bit about my family. Uh, my family, uh, We love watching movies. Um, And we make a whole thing out of it. Like uh, if we're watching movies at home, um, I have mastered the art of making popcorn, um, at least in my kids' eyes anyway. Um, The trick is butter, lots of butter. Um, anyway, so we, we, we love doing movies. We'll do movie nights as a family. Um, there was a long stretch there uh, when in, our, in my marriage where every date night that we did was dinner and a movie until Jess finally said, can we please, for the love of God, go do something else? And, uh, and, and I did learn to do some other things. But we, Jessica and I just went, uh, we had an unexpected, if you're a parent of little ones, then you appreciate this. If you are a grandparent of little ones, heads up. Um, this will bless your, your kids. Um, we had an unexpected, uh, afternoon off because one of the grandparents said, Hey, I'm going to take the kids and we're going to worlds of fun for the day. Bless the Lord. God bless you. And so they did we had a we had a day off so we we went and uh we got something to eat and we went to go watch the new uh Mission Impossible movie uh which was a lot of fun. It was interesting as we were watching the Mission Impossible movie I, and as I started preparing this message for this week I started seeing some correlations because it's you know this is like the 7th or 8th Mission Impossible movie in the franchise. You all have heard of Mission Impossible? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Right, well, not everyone's living under a rock. That's good. And uh, and as I was thinking about where God is taking us today, today we're going to talk about the story of us. We're going to talk about the story of humanity, and, um, and and it's not really possible for us to talk about the story of humanity without also including the story of sin, the story of eternity, and how all of it works together. That's what we're doing um, as we're kind of in week, we're, we're in week eight of our training camp series, and what are we doing this summer? We're learning how to live as champions, and we're kind of playing Playing off of the Chiefs. They started training camp this week um, to, to win another Lombardi trophy. And so we're kind of playing off of that a little bit to, to, to take us back to um, understanding the, the core, fundamental, foundational elements of the faith. And, and as we're thinking about that, as we're thinking about our life and, and we're thinking about, you know, why are we here and how can we know that our life matters and and, and, and where are we going when it's over, it's, it's absolutely incredible, critical that we understand the broader picture and the broader story, or um, I learned a word this week, it's called the meta story. What is a meta story? A meta story is a, is a big story with a bunch of other stories kind of embedded within it. And so today I want to talk to you about the meta story of God, and I want to try to help you see how your life is embedded into it. And here's the reason why. I want you to think for just a second, you showed up onto the movie set of Mission Impossible, and no one gave you a script. You don't really know how you made it past security, but there you are. There's Tom. What up, Tom? For me, what's up, Tom? And, um, uh, you know, you meet some of the other, you know, the Arby's voiceover guy, uh, Bing Rames. You know, he's there. And then some of the other people, I recognize their faces. I don't know their names. But, but you, you, like, you just walked onto the scene and you're seeing all this stuff happen and, and you know, action. And then they start doing their stuff. And then you see all these background people and all the background people are doing their thing. And you're like, I don't know who any of these background people are. Like I recognize Tom and those two dudes and I might recognize her. but I don't ever recognize any of you people before. What are y'all doing here? What I want to help you see today is that if you and I don't understand the meta-story of God and, 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 and how our life and how our story fits and connects to the meta-story of God, then what'll happen is, is that you you will live your life and you will be kind of like one of the background people in a movie. Like you may or may not even be aware that this is the seventh movie in the franchise. You may not know that there are callbacks in this movie back to things that happened in the story like several movies ago. You, you may not know, I'm going to try not to hurt that thing, you may not know that, that there's a lot of other things that are going on, and, and, and so because of that, you, you might walk onto the set and see all these people, you don't know who they are, you don't really even rec- you've never really recognized any of them in a movie before, but but here they are, and they're busy, and they're going, and then all of a sudden, end scene, and every all of them just scatter, and then the stars of the show. Are still there, they move on to the next scene. And here's the reason why I think this is fundamentally critical for us as we are trying to live as champions of the faith. That if you and I don't understand the broader meta story of God, then our lives will be nothing more than like the background people in a movie. That they show up in a certain scene, but they're unremarkable. They're nameless, faceless people. You know that they're there because if they were shooting a, you know, a, a busy a, a, a chase scene in a car and there were no other cars and no other vehicles, you'd be like, this is not very impressive. But they're there, and you, but you don't really appreciate them. You don't really acknowledge them. You're just, you're just aware that there's a mass of people there that help kind of fill out the rest of the story that make it good, but you don't really know who they are. And what can happen is, is that if we don't understand the meta story of God, then we can fall prey to the thought process that says, well, then maybe, maybe nobody knows who I am. Maybe nobody recognizes me. And I just want to say emphatically today that God does know you. That God does know who you are. And that God has created you and crafted you and wired you in such a way that you would play a, a critical role in the story of God. Now, we don't need to get it twisted. Jesus is the star of the show. Nobody else gets that right. But what Jesus wants to help us, un- help us understand today is that he has, he has created a space and a part of the story, a role for us to play in the unfolding story of God. And so I want to dive into this today and I want to try to help us understand this because because if we don't, if we don't understand the story of God and where we connect to it, then we'll never really realize the peace that God wants us to have. We'll never really understand the victory that God sent Jesus down the cross for us to have. We'll certainly never experience the freedom that God intends for us to have. And when it's all said and done with, we'll wonder like, did it even matter that I was here? So I want to dive in today, and, and I want to kind of do a deep study, but I kind of want to do a deep study at a high-level vantage point so that we can get a better perspective of the story that's going on. And as best I can see it, the story of God, the meta-story of God, is, is clearly and cleanly divided into eight different chapters. The first chapter is the story about a, is the first chapter about a kingdom, that God who has always and forever existed, this is hard for us to wrap our brain around, um, but God has eternally existed. There There was never a time that God was not And long before time and matter and space was something that God created, God was there. And God decided, I'm going to create something and I'm going to create a kingdom. And a part of that kingdom is going to include, you know, trees and planets and water and stars and moons and and animals and, and all that stuff. And so God goes to work creating a kingdom. And it's critical that we understand that he created a kingdom. He didn't acquire a kingdom. He didn't conquer a kingdom. It wasn't something that already was. And then he moved in and said, I'm bigger, stronger, faster, more powerful." Than you, I'll beat you and just take over what you have. No, no, no. God created a kingdom, He crafted a kingdom, and it's important that we recognize that because if we don't recognize that, then we won't understand the significance of the thing that God created that He says is the pinnacle, the most precious, the most prized part of His creation. And so in chapter one, God creates a kingdom. In chapter two, we, we, we would best be described as the, uh, I'm gonna try to remember this because I said this, there's actually someone in the, in the church that speaks French and they came up and corrected me. And I'm like, you realize how funny this is? I, you're, you're correcting an Arkansas boy on French. And, I, and, and he, he was like one of those things, he goes, say it like this. And I kept saying, he goes, nope, like this. And I go, I am doing it like that. And he goes, no, you're not chapter 2 is pied de resistance David I'm sorry I just butchered it again chapter 2 is is God's pied de resistance I just went back to my Arkansas way because it feels better and what is this this is the most prized the most precious it's the most significant it's it's the most special part of God's creation it's the most important and remarkable feature of all of creation and that's us Genesis 1.26 tells us about this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. I want to pause real quick because we just finished a little three-part kind of mini-series within the series talking about the Trinity of God, that God is eternally existent as one being with three parts, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You never find the word Trinity in the Scriptures, but in the first verses of the Scriptures, we see the plurality of the personhood of God represented here in Genesis one You actually see it in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1-1, verse 1, but we didn't have time to get into all that. But right here in Genesis one God says, let us. Make man in our image in our likeness and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over the cattle over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here's what's significant about this that, that humanity wasn't just another another just kind of passing thought it wasn't just like a, oh here's an interesting idea. No, God said hold on a second, we've just created the sun the moon, the stars, the plants, the animals, the fish the birds, the, the reptiles, the mammals we, we've created the, the, the mountains and the valleys, the rivers and the streams we've created the the, 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 the the universe and the planets and the stars and the moons and all of that stuff, but holding the phone, stop just for a second, we got to make one more thing. And this last thing that we're going to make, we're going to make it in our image. We're going to put our thumbprint on it. We're we're going to, we're going to use the mold of us to make them because we want them to know that they are altogether different in our eyes. And so that's what God did. God made us in his image As a body, a soul, and a spirit. And God did this very intentionally for a reason because there is nothing else in all of creation that captures God's heart, that captures His affection, that captures His thoughts, that captures His interest more than you, more than us, more than the eight plus billion of us that live on the planet. That's a lot of people, by the way. And God wanted us to understand. Yeah, 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 all of it's cool and all of it glorifies me. But you I made in my image. You are the most prized, precious part of my creation. And then like every story we're telling, the story turns, the antagonist shows up and we get into chapter three where we see the invasion happen. And what happens in the invasion in Genesis chapter three is we, we meet a new, a new creature in the story. In Genesis chapter three, he goes by the name serpent, but in other places in scripture, he's called by names such as Lucifer, Satan, and the devil. And the serpent shows up, and the serpent's ultimate desire, the serpent's ultimate goal is to be God, but the problem is, is he was created by God. The creator cannot be God. The created cannot be God. And not only can he not be God, he can't beat God. And so what he does is he comes in and goes, okay, well, if I can't be God, and if I can't beat God, then I'm going to, I'm going to sabotage the whole thing. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of slide in and with my insidious whispers, and I'm going to speak into the, into the minds and the hearts of the very prized possession of God's creation, the pinnacle of what he has created. And I'm going to slither my way in and I'm going to get them to doubt who God is. I'm going to get them to doubt God's promises. I'm going to get them to believe that God isn't nearly as good as he says he is and that he doesn't think of you as highly as he says he does and so in genesis 3 1 we see that now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and then the serpent said to the woman has god indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden what is he doing He, he he's coming in and he's planting seeds of doubt I can't beat God and I can't be God, but, but maybe if I, can, if I can get the people whom he loves the most, the creation that he cares about the most, to not believe in him, to not worship him, to doubt him, then maybe they would worship me. And I'll take that. And so that's what he does. He introduces doubt to to Adam and Eve and gets them to doubt God and and he presents temptation that ultimately leads to sin. Now what is sin? For us, from our perspective and for God's perspective, sin is anything and everything that we do that that, that is the opposite of what God says. It's any time that we disobey God. It's any time that we don't live according to God's will or God's word or God's ways. And the byproduct of that is that creates distance. It creates separation. That's our perspective and God's perspective of it. But as I was thinking about this message this week and I was praying, God, how can I, how can I communicate sin in such a way that, 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 that might hit just a little bit different? How can I communicate sin in such a way that would cause all of us to see it just a little bit differently, that we would see it as something a little bit different than just, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Jesus, I'm so sorry. And God kind of took me on the vantage point. Well, what, well how does Satan view sin? Because for him, from his perspective, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. In fact, I would go so far as to say that sin is a strategy for Satan. And the serpent uses sin, and and I began to think about um, the, the word sin and broke it down into kind of a word picture as an acronym, but what is sin from the devil's perspective? Sin is a strategy that is subversive that leads to an insurrection to place a new king in our lives, You see, every time the enemy shows up, every time the serpent shows up, and he begins to to bring things into you, he begins to speak things into your mind, he begins to lead you into places, he puts things in front of you that you're like, oh, I really want that. I know I shouldn't have that, but I really, really want that. The reason why he does that is because he is he is is trying to subvert the natural order that God has created. The thing that God has done, when God said that it is good and it works, and God's system is valuable and beneficial to our lives, the enemy is trying to subvert that whole process, and he's trying to get us to make the decision to start an insurrection. And it may not be a, a big global. Let's get a whole bunch of people together insurrection, but every moment of every day where you make the decision towards sin and not towards righteousness, then you are instigating your own little insurrection that is saying, God, you are not the rightful king of my life, I will go to another king. And this is what the enemy does, this is what the serpent does, this is what the serpent did when he brought the invasion into the story. And his hope is that we would, he, he would be able to subvert the established order so that we would depose God that we would open up the door of the ground that God has given us because the enemy cannot take it from us. He can only take what we give him. And so he puts temptation and sin in front of us so that we will open the door, we will depose God as the rightful creator king over our life, and we will hand the crown to the serpent. And in chapter four, we see God respond with the curse. The curse. And God is the rightful creator king, responds with the authority and the power that you would expect someone who rightly has authority and power to do. In the second half of Genesis chapter 3, we see that God begins to issue a curse on the serpent, on Adam, and on Eve. And as a part of this curse, this curse gets passed down. Probably the worst part of the curse is that it doesn't just stop with Adam and Eve. The curse actually continues and has been passed down to every generation of Adam and Eve after them. In fact, Romans chapter 5 tells us this, that therefore just as through one man's sin entered the world, that one man is Adam, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. What is this saying? It's saying because Adam and Eve sinned against God, a part of the curse was death. There's so many terrible, awful things that are part of the curse of God. I hear people ask, you know, if God is so good, then, then why does he allow bad things to happen? The reality of it is, is God doesn't just allow bad things to happen. We choose for those bad things to happen because we chose sin and we are born in sin. And every generation after Adam was born, yes, you were beautiful and precious and sweet and cuddly and snuggly. And it was cute when you burped and pooped and everyone laughed when you did this and that. But from God's perspective, We were born bitten by the serpent, by sin. And as a result of that, all kinds of terrible things have come into the human story. Sickness, illness, death, disease, depression, anxiety. Denver Bronco fans and Missouri Tiger fans, all of it part of the curse. There was a Denver Bronco fan in the first service and he took exception to that. But he's on our board, so, you know, Apparently the board was texting each other and he told me after, he goes, yeah, that's gonna show up in your performance evaluation at the end of the year. I'm having a little bit. Is it okay if we have just a little bit of fun, break a little bit of the tension, is that okay? But what God wants us to see is that that none of these things were part of his original intent and design for you and for me and for us. It wasn't a part of what he wanted for us to experience. But because of sin, That's what we all experience. And because of sin, we all have the same origin story. Think about this for a second. There's over 8 billion people on the planet today. There's been over 110 billion people that have ever lived on the planet. And every single one of us had this one thing in common. We all share the same origin story. We were all born into sin, bitten by the serpent. And because of that, it creates separation between us as, between us and God. And God now cannot have the kind of relationship that he's always wanted to have with his creation. In fact, Isaiah 59 and verse two, it says this. It says, but your iniquities, that's all the bad stuff that you did, have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. See, we're not born into this world close to God. We're not born into this world as good people. We're born in this world as sinful people separated from God. In short, the invasion worked. It created a brokenness in the relationship between God and the pinnacle of his creation. No longer would he walk with and, and, and talk with us like he did with Adam and Eve. I imagine that, that God as a, as a father was, was mesmerized and, 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 and kind of chuckled at the things as Adam and Eve were figuring them out. I remember when my son, uh, my middle child, when he was about a year old, maybe 15 months, he he realized he had fingers. It was so awesome to watch him be mesmerized by his fingers, like. And I remember we would hand him things. It was so cute. We would hand him things, and he would grab things like this. And then he would turn, but he wasn't really looking at the thing. He was looking at his fingers and then he would hand it off. And Jessica and I would just watch and laugh. We would literally just hand him things and just watch him do that. Why? Because it was amusing to us to watch him learn about him and, and, and how God had created him. But now because of sin, God can't have that kind of relationship with his people anymore. God can't have that relationship. And so God does something about it. the problem is is that because of the curse the world the entire globe all of us live in this place where we are separated from God and we don't live under the we we, we don't live under subjection under under an earth that is that is um worshiping and serving God as the rightful creator king we now in chapter five we come and we learn about the squatter king what is a squatter a squatter is someone who who lives on or, or takes possession of something that doesn't really belong to them And that's what the serpent is. The serpent is a squatter king. He he has some authority. Second Corinthians four four refers to the serpent as the God liturgy of this age. It means that he has he has some authority and he has some say and he has some sway into the events and things that happen into your life. And as he is here, in the same way, like when you watch the Lion King, when Scar become, you know, kind of ascends to the throne, it's not blessings and and, and benefits and abundance to the people, it's only self serving to him. Watch the Chronicles of Narnia, the wicked witch, when she ascends to the throne. It, it's not good for the people. It's good for her. And the exact same thing is true under the squatter king that the, that the earth is kind of living under the authority of at the moment, that, that it's not really benefiting anyone except for the squatter king. In fact, the Bible tells us what his agenda is. It tells us what his promise is. In John chapter 10, and verse 10, here's his agenda. It's to steal, kill, and to destroy Everything about his agenda and everything about his reign as the squatter king on earth and as the squatter king that wants to try to impose himself into our lives, nothing about it is going to bring you joy. Nothing about it's going to bring you victory. Nothing about it's going to bring you peace. It's only going to bring things, this feeling of a feeling like something's been stolen from you, like something that you cared about has died and that you have to live now in this place where, where you have to live in this everlasting sense that everything is just being destroyed all the time you see this is what sin does in our lives I was talking to someone in our church a good friend of mine and he called me this week about something that was going on with a family member family member had made some really bad decisions and some really bad choices and he's on the phone and he's, he's just, he's just lost it. I mean, he's, he's weeping over the phone and he goes, man, I just, I hate this for my family. I hate what's happening. I hate that, that, that sin has won here. I hate that other people are being hurt by it. I hate that there's, there's people in the ripple effects of the decisions that they made. And as we were talking, I was reminded of something that I heard my pastor say when I was growing up. And it's so very true that sin will always, always, always cost you more than you expected to pay. And it will always lead you to a place that is so much further than you ever expected to go. This is the agenda of the serpent to steal, kill, and to destroy. But the encouragement is, is embedded into these chapters. God begins to give us a hope. He begins to give us some foreshadowing. He begins to lay some breadcrumbs that point the way to a hero that was gonna come. A hero that was going to come, that was going to, that was going to fix the problem of sin, that was going to overthrow the the, the serpent. And in chapter 6, we learn about the hero and, and, and we learn about him for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3, right after the God is, is in the process of giving the cursed portion to the serpent. And at the very end of that, he says this, he says, And I will put enmity or opposition between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, if you're reading in your Bible, you'll see that the second seed is capitalized. It's not just talking about any child or any offspring or any seed. This is in reference to a specific person. It says, and he with a capital H shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his capital H, heel." This is the first of more than 300 what what scholars refer to as messianic prophecies. These are things that happen in the Old Testament where God is leaving a breadcrumb, these promises of the hero that's going to come, that's going to fix the problem, that's going to save us all. And 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, he was born not just as fully God and fully man, but he was born with credentials because a host of those promises, a host of those prophecies spoke to the conditions that the hero would be born into. Impossible conditions that no one can fabricate, that no one could, could try to orchestrate on their own, especially before they're even born. But Jesus perfectly meets all of these three hundred messianic prophecies, and he shows up as the hero into the story. And when Jesus shows up, he shows up, and he offers the rebuttal. If it was a if it was a, a, a debate of some sort of elected office, then the enemy, the serpent, would stand on one side and goes, "My agenda and my platform is to still kill and destroy." But I'm never going to tell you outright that's what it is. Instead, I'm going to make you think that what I have to give you is better than what he's got to give you. But what you don't know is that it's laced with poison. And as soon as you start to enjoy it, you won't be able to get enough of it, and it's going to take you further and further and further and further away all the while it brings me joy to watch your death devastation and destruction and Jesus shows up in the scene and he tells us in the second half of John chapter 10 and verse 10 he says listen that he's a thief and what he's going to do is he's going to still kill and destroy your life but let me tell you what I'm offering let me tell you what my platform is if you would vote for me if you would choose me if you would elect me as king of your life I offer a platform that is life and life abundantly And Jesus comes offering and standing on this platform, letting everyone know what it is that he offers, something that is altogether different than what the serpent is offering, something altogether different than what, what the loud noises and voices of the culture are going to tell you. But he stands as a light that shines in the midst of the darkness and the devastation and destruction of this world. And Jesus doesn't just come with a platform. He comes with a promise because in John chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, he says this. He says, listen, God so loved the whole world. That he sent me, that anyone and everyone anywhere and everywhere who would believe in me, y'all won't perish and have to live only experiencing this and then die wondering, did it matter that I was here? Did it, did it count? Do I know where I'm going? No, 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 no. If you would choose me, if you would trust me, if you would believe in me, you would experience everlasting life. And everlasting life doesn't start the moment that you die and you get to heaven. Everlasting life starts at the moment that you trust in me, and I start to come in and start to be a life-giving presence in your life that leads. You to places that bring you more victory, that bring you more peace, that bring you more joy, that bring you more purpose. And then eventually he reveals. His plan, because in chapter seven we discover the rescue mission of God. This is God's plan, and, and God's plan um, involved the fulfillment of the very first messianic prophecy in Genesis three fifteen. That yes, the serpent did indeed bruise Jesus' heel when he was crucified, but Jesus emphatically stomped on the head of the serpent when he rose from the grave on the third day, and he says, "Death is done; it's finished." And because of what Jesus did to overcome sin, what Jesus did to overcome death, in every place in your life and in my life where the enemy wants to put a period at the end of an awful sentence, Jesus says, in me, I can replace that with a comma and I can show you what I can do if you'll trust me with the rest of it. And then in something that just absolutely seems to be no sense whatsoever Jesus goes up into heaven and he makes it clear he says listen I'm going to come back but between now and the time that I come back I'm putting you in charge now, I got to be honest I, I wouldn't have done it that way that God gave us the keys to the car it wouldn't have been my plan but it was Jesus' plan and here's where things get to be really interesting for me and for you because it's in this chapter of this unfolding story of God and the broader meta story of God that you and I begin to realize wait hold on a second that my life does matter my life my life does has meaning my life does have value I'm not just a nameless, faceless avatar in the background of a movie that just helps make everyone feel better about the scene. And when the scene's over, everyone else goes on. And then I go back into my nameless, faceless, wondering, meandering through life. no, 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 no. God is saying to you today, I see you. I created you. I crafted you. I sent Jesus to die for you. And I have a space in the story that I have created specifically and especially and uniquely for you and you alone. And our part of the story, it might look different the way that all of us do it, but ultimately our part of the story is simply to go be a witness, like we sang about today, to be a witness of the things that we've seen. Have you seen God be good in your life? Then be a witness to it. Have you seen God's power in your life? Be a witness to it. Have you seen God move in miraculous ways in your life? Be a witness to it. Have you heard the voice of God in your deep, dark despair? Then be a witness to it. Because Jesus says in Acts chapter one and verse eight, he says, all power and authority has come upon me and I'm giving it to you that you should go be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what Jesus is saying is, is that your life, you have a role. I'm elevating you beyond the nameless, faceless avatars back here and I'm bringing you into speaking, into screen time. You've got a speaking role in the story. And our speaking role is simply to tell of anyone who would be willing to listen, I have met a different king. And he is good. And he is powerful. And he has done good things in my life. And I may not be able to explain all of it, but I know that he was in the middle of it. And in God's infinite knowledge, this is what baffles me. The success of the rescue mission hangs in the balance of our obedience to say yes to being a witness. I don't want to guilt you today and I don't want to make you feel bad today, but I do want the weight of that to sit on you for a moment. When you wake up tomorrow, you're not just going into Starbucks to make coffee for people. You're not just waking up to go and run numbers for the accounting side of the business. You're not just going into the law office to look at another stack of uh, of files and cases. You're not just going to show up and mow your yard and say hi to a neighbor. You're not going to band practice tomorrow or football practice tomorrow. When you wake up tomorrow, if you have experienced the goodness of God and you have said yes to allowing Jesus to be the king of your life and you've trusted in him for salvation, then you're not just waking up tomorrow. There is no such thing as going through the motions as a child of God, as a member of his kingdom. You are sent You have been entrusted with the very light of God inside of you to go walk into the darkness. You have been commissioned by God with the life of Jesus. To go walk into the darkness and the devastation and the destruction and the despair and the anxiety and the depression and the financial hardship and the marital chaos and the the gender ideology and the the, uh, confusion over who I am and what I am. You have been sent by God. You don't have to have the answers to all of the things. All you have to know is I was once over here and I experienced what it felt like to be under the rule and reign of steal, kill, and destroy. But something happened. and and I met Jesus and I've experienced something that's totally different. And I can't explain all the Bible verses that explain it and I don't know all the theology or the $9 words that help people feel smarter about it. All I know is I was once here and I felt this and now I'm over here and I'm telling you about it. You've been called, you've been sent, you've been commissioned and the rescue mission of Jesus hangs in the balance of you and me saying yes to that. And the rescue mission of Jesus, it's been going on for the last 2,000 years, and we don't know how much longer it's going to go on for, but it's going to continue until the final chapter begins, because the final chapter, chapter eight, is the chapter of total victory. These are things that have not yet happened, but the Bible gives us a glimpse into the future of things that are going to happen and what things are going to look like, and, and nobody can really understand all of it, only God does. But what we know for certain is that at the end of the book, the serpent will be done away with. There will be no more evil, no more wickedness. There will be no more grief, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more anxiety, no more depression. There will simply be God and his goodness and for those who have trusted in Jesus will experience all of God in his perfect goodness. What's crazy is, is that not only do we read in the last chapter of the meta story of God that, that we find in several places, but mostly the book of Revelation. Not only do we find that that some of us, those of us who have tossed off the crown of the squatter king and come over and and surrendered ourselves to the creator king, Jesus, that not only are we going to be allowed and invited into his kingdom... Because he's going to do away with all of this. He's going he's to start over. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. And he's going to invite us into that. And not only will we be invited into it, we will be given a promotion where we will be invited and included to rule and reign with Jesus in his new kingdom. I don't know what all that means. But I know that when we get to heaven, praise God, we're going to do more than wear cloth diapers float around on clouds and pick a harp and be pastel colored with pink rosy cheeks. That's not what what heaven and eternity is going to be like. Precious moments, y'all got it wrong. We're going to be invited into being a part of God's kingdom. We're going to be given jobs and roles and we're going to be able to do things that matter. And the crazy thing, the whole story loop of this whole idea, this whole thing that God is writing is that God invites the very people who were once initiators of the insurrection to depose him as king He sent a hero to save us from ourselves, to invite us into his kingdom, and those same people who helped with the insurrection will be invited to have a seat at the table of his administration. And the meta-story of God, this is so critical that you understand this, the broader meta-story of God is not about bad people who need help being good. If you believe that, then you'll be inclined to hear a story like this and hear all of this kind of, this, this, this kind of picture you get painted and you'll go, man, that sounds good. I think that's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be better. I'll do more. But that's not what the meta story of God is, because that's that's not how it works. The meta story of God is not about bad people learning how to be good. It's about spiritually dead people whom God makes spiritually alive to be able to experience the fullness of the life that God always wanted for them to have. That sin robbed them of. I'm like, all right, preacher man. I mean, that's a. I mean, hello, that's a that's a lot of information. Um, you you did it you pretty much got the whole Bible in like one message and it's I'm hungry now I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to do with any of that well let me help you with it the story of God is about us recognizing that it was his mercy that sent Jesus into the world to die and pay the price for our sin it was God's mercy that did that and it's God's grace, once we have received the gift of new life by believing in Christ for salvation, it's God's grace that goes to work in our lives to transform us from the inside out. The plan and the story of God was never going to be found in in, 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 in behavior modification or, or 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 laying out a vision board. The plan for us to be able to experience the abundant life Jesus promises was always ever only going to be found in Jesus working on us from the inside out. And the more that we allow him to have access of on the inside, the more he begins to change the things that that are going on on the outside. Jesus doesn't show up into your story and call out the top five things that, that are like the worst sinful things that you've ever done. He doesn't come up to you go, hello, here's your name and here's the five worst things you've ever done. That's not how it works. Jesus shows up and he says, I know exactly who you are because I created you. And I brought you to this moment. Yeah, those five things, yeah, those are true. I'm not super concerned about those things right now. I'll handle that in due time. For now, I desperately want to have a relationship with you. I desperately want to be able to be in a relationship with you. I desperately want to be able to connect with you and to get to know you and for you to get to know me and for you to experience the fullness of the life that I always intended for you to have. And as you say yes to that and as you perpetually grow in your relationship with Jesus, don't be surprised when he shows up into that deep, dark, Um, that that closet that you've kind of buried everything in in the deep, dark recesses of your heart, eventually he's gonna show up and he's gonna open the door of that closet and he's gonna pull a box out and he's gonna open it up and he's gonna dump it on the floor and you're gonna feel all kinds of shame and you're gonna feel all kinds of guilt and he's gonna say, listen, I didn't do this for you to feel shame and guilt. I did this so that you can be set free from it. I've opened up the junk. I've opened up the chaos. I've opened up the box of addiction. I've opened up the box of divorce. I've opened up the box of, uh, 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 of bitterness. I've opened up the box of unforgiveness. And I've dumped it out here, not so that I can I can condemn you in it and make you feel bad for it. I've done it because as long as it's in your closet, as long as it's in your heart, as long as it's in your life, you'll never be free the way that I want you to be. And so I'm gonna open it up. I'm gonna dump it out. And we're gonna go to work because I'm tired of, of, of the circumstances continuing to have influence in your life because you've not allowed me to, to, to make this clean and make it right. And so God invites us that if we have encountered Jesus, if we have experienced his goodness and mercy, if we have surrendered ourselves and bowed our knee to King Jesus and said, Jesus, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. Then what Jesus wants us to understand is that we have been commissioned and we have been called after having experienced his light and his life that has transformed our life. He has called us to highlight the hero that can save us all. When we understand this, we begin to realize that Christianity isn't a Sunday morning church thing. We begin to realize that church isn't really a Sunday morning church thing. That it's never about, the reason we come to church is never really about how many people can we get in the door. It's about the types of people that walk out the door that go back out into the world. Because you've had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus invites you to allow his light to shine through your life. Matthew 5, 16 says this, that we are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father that's in heaven. What does that mean? It means that we live in such a way that when opportunities come to be able to speak to the thing that Jesus has done in our life, we take advantage of it. You don't have to go around you know, your, your, your cubicle office park and, and start smacking people upside the head with your 40-pound family Bible. What's the matter with you, sinner? Like that, that that has never worked. But what God does invite us into is to go into that world recognizing that because of Jesus, we're a little bit different. Not better, but we've experienced something different. And the very thing that makes us different is the thing that the whole world is looking for. Well, they're not looking for that because they believe in this and they voted for that person and they've got this bumper sticker on their car. I can't talk to them I can't talk to them because they're they're of a different faith I can't talk to them because they voted Democrat they voted Republican none of that stuff matters what matters to God is being reacquainted and reconnected with his prized creation. So he calls us to highlight Jesus, the hope of the world. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, can I tell you that what God wants for you to understand is that, that whether you even agree with God, even if you don't even believe in God, that's okay. Okay. But from God's perspective, he's writing a meta story and he wrote you into it. And he's inviting you today to begin to understand why. He's inviting you today to begin to understand what it means to no longer live under the steal, kill and destroy agenda of the serpent. And to give him a chance to see what's possible from the one who promised life and life abundantly. And the only thing that separates the people from this camp and the people from that camp is whether or not you have bowed your knee and said yes to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're the king of my life. I believe you love me. I believe you died on the cross. I got so much junk in my life. And if you can still love me anyway, like I'm willing to accept that. And if you're offering me something different than what I've been getting because I keep doing what I'm doing and keep getting what I'm getting, if you're telling me there's a way out of this, this, you know, hamster wheel and to experience something different, then I'm willing to give that a chance. And Jesus' response to you today would simply be, well then come on. And watch what I can do in your life When you exercise just a little bit of faith and trust. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.